Hello, lovely. It's Shauna Lee, and welcome back to the Soul Frequency Show podcast, where we're stepping into the light and raising our frequency together. Each week, we get to return to this sacred space to have conversations about the things we all experience in life, love, health, and career. A space where we, as spiritual beings, having this human experience, can amplify our gifts and remember our truth. The title of this episode is Into the Nothing. So this is an exciting episode for me. I, gosh, I have to tell you the story of this. So when I, years ago, I'm going to say it was 2011, 12, when I was deeply into understanding my own holistic health journey and really starting to, I would say, separate my reality from the common narrative um, and really start to see things a little bit differently and start to just interpret the world in my own way rather than the ways I was taught to interpret the world. I found the work of my guest today, Dr. Gabriel Cousins, and started to read his books and was just fascinated by his life journey uh, from what I knew of it and, and his work with holistic health and um, food and all of this kind of stuff. And so it was way at the beginning of my journey. And I thought to myself, what a fascinating man, like just what an interesting and fascinating journey. And so cut to today, right? All these years later, um, he has written a book called Into the Nothing about his life journey. And it was an absolute pleasure to really be able to understand his spiritual path and all of the work that he's done. He's done so many amazing things in the world. And, um, and I'm so honored to have him on the show. It was so fun to connect with him. I think you will really, really be able to feel his vibe and feel his energy. Um, and so here's a little bit about him. Uh, it says, this intrepid spiritual warrior has forged a path to the holistic liberation way through years of courageous, yes, he's very courageous, fearless and intensive spiritual intention and meditation. His astonishing new book, Into the Nothing, a spiritual autobiography, reveals the mystical wild ride he personally took to becoming liberated, surrendering to the divine urge to fully merge into the state of God consciousness and awaken to living from the soul that is beyond the body and mind. He is 77 years old. He's a world-renowned holistic physician. He's a rabbi, a yogi, a spiritual mystic, a psychiatrist, family therapist, and he's a vital at any age advocate, a humanitarian and peace ambassador. He walks the planet in a state of eternal presence, seeing the emanating light from all things, and yet living in the very real world where his good works and spiritual guidance change lives daily. He lives, as he says, in the world between nothing, which is the world beyond time, and something, the temporal world, and experiences a fully integrated life in multiple dimensions, happy, joyful, grateful, loving, and peaceful without any exterior reason, because that is the nature of the primordial consciousness. He is amazing. I know you're going to enjoy this. So with no further ado, Dr. Gabriel Cousins. 
Welcome to the show, Dr. Gabriel Cousins. Oh, I'm very happy to be here, Shauna. It's, it's an honor to be on your show. Thank you for being here. So I was just telling you before we started recording that I have followed your work for a while. I've enjoyed it during my spiritual awakening. I found, I think I found a book or, and then I found, I was on your website and I just was fascinated. I was going through my own kind of, um, holistic healing experience. I started eating better and I started getting fascinated with, you know, just how our consciousness can shift from that change alone. Um, and so I was really happy when I received your new book, which is really about your incredible life journey. And so I'm thrilled to be talking about this today and I'm thrilled to ask you, I have lots of questions. So we're going to have some fun. How about that? That sounds good. God is best approached with joy. Yes, I agree. I agree. So, so as I'm reading through this, I was thinking like, you know, we all have a very full life story, right? Many things happen in our lives and, and you kind of are relating back in this book to some of, you know, even during your football career and, and things that you did when you're younger, some of the spiritual experiences that were going on. And so I was just wondering, like going back to eight and nine, when you were having visions and things of that nature, how were you making sense of that at the time? It's a really interesting question because where I grew up in the suburbs of Chicago, uh, it was way beyond what people could think about. So I very quickly learned this is not to be shared. Okay. Uh, when I was four, I knew I wanted to be a doctor. Now, no one in my family uh, had been anything like that. There was no doctors in the whole family lineage for hundreds of years back. So like, okay, I've got some kind of message. I don't know what that means, but I kind of got that it was important. When I was eight and I began having visions of mystics and, 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 and white robes, which later repeated in different ways, I quickly learned there was no one I could really talk to. I really loved my parents. I was really close to them, but it was really over their heads. And so I realized there, there really wasn't anyone I could talk to. So I just kept it inside, but also felt a certain reality to it, which is one of the big messages that I make throughout. And, and what I make throughout the book into the nothing is have faith, but faith is in the truth. And the truth is there's only God. So the faith I had at that point, being an eight-year-old, is... I know this is true. I don't know what it is. Uh, and that was the best I could do, but I, I trusted it. That's my point of making. There was something going on that was beyond my understanding. And, uh, and I, something within me said, this is true. And, and I think that's the, that, that was the best I could do. Now, over time, more and more uh, things happened to me. Some were so pleasant, which is my brother when I was 16 was killed in a car accident. He was 22. We were very close. And so fine, you know, again, more, that's when I really began meditating. Again, no one taught me to meditate. There just wasn't that consciousness in the fifties, late fifties of, of, of such a, such a thing. So, okay. But I spontaneously began to meditate. I, was in a kind of mythical thing. It's, uh, I was building a heart-lung machine. Again, they didn't exist commercially, but I had run across that at the University of Chicago uh, at a 
factors of the future type thing. And I was building one and I began having these visions, but also began to feel I was recreating life. And in a way, literally I was connected with my brother. And uh, that's another level of story. And then as I evolved, uh, the visions and understandings uh, occurred. One of the most important ones was actually in 1975 when I met Swami Muktananda. And after receiving Shakyapad, I kind of merged into the nothing, which I, that never had happened before. And he, uh, and a little voice rang out and said, you should learn to eat and live in a way that supports the Kundalini. I almost, people, including myself, didn't know much about Kundalini, but I proceeded. And I, that's how I developed the Rainbow Green Life Food Cuisine, was this was the diet. It's a plant-based, vegan, uh, or I'll say plant-based diet that was uh, eight, at least 80% live food. Now, myself, from that time on, from 75 to 83, I was pretty much 100% live food. But I saw that made you a superconductor of the divine. So that little, little message that said, learn to eat and live this way, began to manifest. And the living this way was uh, meditating. Uh, during that time, I was off and on in India, I was meditating six hours a day, chanting four and a half hours a day, spending time sitting uh, with Muktananda another hour or so a day. So that was my intensive focus. Now I'm also married. And at that time, my kids were, well, roughly, I mean, during that time of seven years, but five, uh, five years old and eight, eight years old. My son was eight. And so they were involved in the spiritual life too, as, as was my wife at that time, Nora. Um, not as intensely, but things would happen. This is the key I'm giving to everybody here. So one day we're walking to the early morning uh, chanting, chanting at 4.30 in the morning and my daughter was five starts crying. And this continues for five, six days in a row. I was like, what is going on? So I went to ask Muktananda. I was like, I can't, I don't understand. You know, and he said, there's a demon in the adjoining field that the ashram is more in the country that's uh, attacking your daughter. And then he says, this is what you do. You go out in the field, you know, A, B, C, D. And okay, now it's not exactly my choice was to go out into a field to fight demons. I mean, that's just not the first thing in my mind. But that was a direct order. He prepared me and I did do that and I did banish it. And my daughter was fine after that. But what's the message here is life is always giving us opportunities to grow spiritually. And so here I am in this field with all these malaria mosquitoes and everything, and I'm facing a demon. It's like, what? <laughs> okay. It was like out of the, it's out of the magic. It's just off the charts, but it worked. And then I realized over time that I actually, with some training, really began to actually do that work. So I've been doing that since it's 1975. Uh, demons entities and things so but things happen and then are we going to align with the divine will for our destiny and in that alignment 
we are fulfilling a bigger picture. So even though this was not my interest, I realized, yeah, it is what you're supposed to do. So you have to align with your destiny. And, and I think that's a really important thing. So all the events in our life, if we had that spiritual angle to it, which I did in that sense, okay, look to not saying to do this, do it. And I grow spiritually from it. Later, uh, 1989, we, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, we went to the different concentration camps to release the uh, trapped souls. Because when people are killed in that setting, their souls get trapped there. And, and you could see we did it, but things were pretty intense. Like, I don't know what I'm doing. I know I'm supposed to be doing this. That's number one. But I don't know what I'm, I'm just doing it. Here's the ceremony and we're releasing these things. Literally, the, I, you know, I, one person was with me and we could see demons coming out of the ground. The Russian, this is still East Germany, the Russians were there. They didn't come close because they knew something was really way beyond themselves. And when we did Auschwitz, which is a six hour ordeal, we did the ceremony. And this column of light was there, like it was in the other place, where souls are going up. You're seeing the souls going up. This is not like your imagination. And one person had joined our group was from Santa Rosa, California. And he, he had been in that concentration camp and had escaped at the age of 13. So he, he, sees, he, he sees his mother and sister going up because you can actually see their shapes. You can see their faces. And it was like, it was a huge healing for him. When I did uh, another place, uh, Ravensbrook, I counted 100,000. So uh, that went up. And, and there was a museum that opened later. And I said, well, how many people were here? Well, we're killed, 100,000. So there's a certain reality coming back. Because as a scientist, a biophysics, biochemist publishing papers, you got to have a certain validation. So it's not your imagination. I mean, that's really uh, part of the story, so to speak, for, for a scientist's point of view. So I'm a person that's a mystic and the scientist. It's like you walk in a few different worlds. Maybe they're all coming together. So we could see the souls going up. And I did it again. I've done it in a variety of times. It's a place called Blood Island just a few years ago uh, where the U.S. Cavalry had killed uh, all the women and children of a, a tribe, about 250 were massacred. So we did a ceremony there and they were souls released. We could see them going up and all these different things were happening. But it's, it's kind of like, okay, I learned this started in 1975 when I had to face the demon and do this kind of work. So the message is okay, align with your destiny. Don't go with your ego, align with your destiny. If this is what's coming in front of you, it may not be your first choice or your second choice or that what you want to do at all, but do it. So that's yeah. a huge message. Okay. Yeah, it's it's powerful. Do you think we align with our destiny sometimes through like difficult or painful experiences? Yes. Now I'm going to say it this way. It is it can be easy or hard. We have to be very careful with that. But people say, if it's easy, it's good. Not necessarily. If it's easy, it could be a cop-out. If it's hard, it could be hard because you're saying that's a warning. Or 
I know this is my destiny. I'm going to do this because I know it's the truth of what has to be done for me to grow spiritually. Yeah. So I think it's absolutely true that when we face great difficulties, we they that can really elevate us. And again, one of the themes of my book, Into the Nothing, is every life experience, how you look at it, uh, and if you look at it as a gift from God to elevate us spiritually, then you're going to elevate us spiritually. Because my belief is everything that comes our way is to elevate us spiritually. Yeah, agreed. And you talk about also in the book, like, you know, your activism, like early in life, and then some of your vantage points, um, you talk about Malcolm X and, and JFK and, and that time, that period of time um, here in the U.S., what what was changing for you where you kind of changed, you know, from your vantage point of activism to this this spiritual path? So it's a very good question. So at Columbia Medical School, I was uh, I lived in Central Harlem actually, and <laughs> used to commute, ride my bicycle up to Central Harlem up to uh, 186th Street, you know, 181st Street where Columbia was. And so I had access to a variety of people, but I was a, uh, I wasn't like a weatherman type of energy like what we're seeing to, today too. Uh, it was really, how do I up, uplift the community? And it was in that context, uh, or a little bit before that, I was like talking to Malcolm X. And he left his, he was assassinated, what was it, 1965 in October. But I was working with him because I saw, here's a person besides all the things he went through, but at the end of the story, he still focused with uplifting. Uh, he was a black nationalist, but in a positive way that uplifted community, that was his politics. And so I was uh, kind of working with him in that way before he was assassinated. And so you're asking the question, okay, well, how did you shift? Well, what I did shift is that I saw people who were really into violence and I and I didn't see them as being different than the other side. You know, we're better, our violence is better than their violence. And I and I realized that this is not my path. I, I my path wasn't one of violence and polarity. My my path was more one of unity. And so I worked uh we had a committee of 100 in Central Harlem. We had 100 different groups all working together to improve community life. You see what I mean? Versus uh, uh, an opposition fighting each other. Yeah. So I saw I, I wasn't just because I thought I was a good guy, right? So my politics were still in that confrontation level. There was a shift going on where I said, no, no, this has to be one of unification. It's got to be a win-win for everybody. Um, so even my work in Central Harlem, as I moved away from the radical leftist, you know, type of stuff that we see today a little bit too, you know, like the weatherman, it, it was like, wait, that's they're just, they're just like every they're just like the opposition. They're marrying each other, and I, I realized that wasn't for me. That was not going to be my truth, and so. Uh, I kind of withdrew, uh, withdrew from that for those reasons. I, I, I said, this is not uplifting me. It's not really uplifting society. It is playing out a lot of violence, but 
uh, violence on either side does not elevate us. It brings us down. So kind of gradually over a few years, like I kind of got to the place where, well, I don't want to play with that. And then it was finalized when I went off to India. So I said, okay, it's not external. Change your internal world first. And then from that place, do that. I mean, it's not like I, I'm not a social activist. And a hum, I'm going to call it humanitarian. I mean, I have, uh, I'm in, uh, I've spoken in 42 different countries. I have programs in 26 different countries around the world, uh, probably over 100 programs, uh, growing food. Like we're working in five countries in Africa. Nobody's having a food problem because they've all got organic, vegan, organic farming uh, techniques where they're able to feed those around them. To me, that's really positive. So it's it's constantly uh, turning this around into a positive, using the energy to uplift humanity, to actually uplift humanity in a way that it's a win-win for everybody. So that's kind of the way that shift went. It was like, well, this doesn't feel good. It doesn't really feel like a real truth to me. How do I turn my desire to uplift humanity into a positive uh, situation where everybody wins, every, you know, and so forth. So that's kind of the shift that took place over a few years. Yeah, it's beautiful. And how do you feel like, you know, how does that equate to this period of time that we're in? I'm just curious of your vantage point of, of all of the shifts that are going on right now. Well, we're in what's called, what I think we're in is the fourth turning. So the, you have societal disruption. Now, you can degenerate the society and people play out their violence like they were doing in the 60s, right? Or, and drugs uh, and things like that that take you kind of to another, uh, to the other side of it, they're called the dark side. Or you could say, okay, this is a change time. How do we work together to uplift the evolution of humanity? So once you kind of ask that question, then you draw people to you who, here I am on your show. Look, this is what you're doing. Yeah. So how do we, how, so that's what I'm doing. Into the nothing is about how do we end up uplifting humanity to make it to these uh, change times, not as a negative, violent, blood, blood type situation, but as a way to uh, upgrade human consciousness on the planet. So it's like your angle of looking at, okay, these things are happening. There's, it's kind of destined these things are going to happen. That's fine. Let's take it to the highest octave rather than the lowest octave. Yeah, definitely. And and you talk about like the concept too of karma and you relate it, you know, at the part where you're talking about your football career and you had, um, you really, it's fascinating to me how you talk about kind of the spiritual lessons and the things you learned when you played football when you were young, but you were talking a little bit about back pain that you had had or your back and um, and how we are working out karma. And many times that's through pain. Can you explain that a little more? Sure. Uh, the, uh, I'll just talk about football for a second. Uh, the football... That was where I first had my, uh, some of my biggest spiritual experiences. Because when you go beyond yourself and you go beyond your body, you know, into that, uh, 
liberation space where there's no you, I began having that playing football. I, I wasn't exactly the biggest. I was actually usually the smallest person in the field, but I was, you know, uh, National Football Hall of Fame and a lot of uh, scholar athletes. You know, I got a lot of awards, even though I was the smallest person. But because I was able to go beyond pain and limitations, I was able to have that kind of waking up energy. Now, pain is not a prerequisite, but uh, uh, for me, for example, I, I had what we call, uh, a variety of what we call congenital defects, like spina bifida occulta, and it was getting more and more painful. Uh, there, there were times where I, I couldn't even walk up the stairs without everything hurting. Uh, and I just, in a sense, learned to transcend that. And, and that learning to transcend it, that's where I kind of, I grew spiritually. So uh, football was an example of how to transcend it. Uh, now, here I am, 57 years later, and I'm pain-free. How did that happen? Well, I went to the karma that I had to burn up, which included the pain, who knows what for, that I had to go through. So again, whatever life is giving us, we need to say, how do we elevate ourselves? So for me, facing the uh, spina bifida occulta and overcoming that, actually even getting a little bit of a physical operation for that, all elevated me spiritually, although I wasn't that sophisticated at the time that I saw it that way. That's why I'm writing the book, uh, why I wrote the book into nothing, because like things happen, but if you don't, it, but but it takes a, a kind of a, an awakened eye to see what's going on. So I burn up my karma for whatever reason I had that of the lower back pain. I believe all congenital defects are a are a result of previous karmas, either earlier in this lifetime or in previous lifetimes. So we have to face it and go through the pain. And the Torah says measure for measure. So you create something that may cause pain to other people or whatever, you have to you pay that measure for measure. So that's how I, I, I in a sense, look at it. Now, there's another level to it in facing pain. So I've had uh, two uh, uh, hernia operations, abdominal operations. Again, congenital defects and so forth. And I did it without anesthetic. Wow. So why did I do that? Well, the, the wild mystic in me says, fine, if you are so good at meditating, let's see how good you are. So <laughs> myself, right? <laughs> let's do this without, without anesthetic. The doctors had a hard time about it. But again, Part of the spiritual path is challenging yourself. Like, okay, let's see. You meditate, let's see how good. So uh, there's in yoga we have called pratyahara, it's the fifth level uh, of the eight limb yoga, which is uh, rising above the senses. So I actually had two operations that were pain-free, abdominal operations. Wow. Um, so uh, so I'm, part of the path for me is challenge, challenge, challenge yourself. Okay, so pain becomes a challenge uh, going to other levels. So for level one is 
Okay, you'll make it through the pain. Level two is prachahara, which is dissolving the senses. Oh, well, there's no pain here on the physical plane. Uh, once you get to a certain level. So all those who are kind of going on, I, I do share it, obviously, in the book. So people can look at different levels. But pain is a karmic clearing. And uh, if we see it that way, we have a different perspective rather than, oh, poor me. I've got this back problem. Maybe I shouldn't play football. Maybe I should just not move around. Maybe I should totally contract. Well, no, that's not the way you grow spiritually. So I, I didn't exactly run from pain. Obviously, getting operations without anesthetic is way I use the pain, threat of pain, to actually transcend and reach another level of the kind of yoga unfolding. Wow. Amazing. So interesting. And you write about, too, there's so much in this book. I mean, you guys got to read this book. <laughs> it's so good. Um, but you write about the six foundations and sevenfold peace. Can you share about that? Yes. Good question, Shirley. So I saw, uh, so I'm a person that's kind of uh, multiple backgrounds. I'm, like, I'm working as a yogi, you know, acknowledge a yogi by my two, guru, my two spiritual teachers, the liberated beings. Uh, uh, I'm also a rabbi, but also I'm a sun dancer. And the sun dance, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but you, you go four days without food and water, uh, and then you, what we call you pierce. So that you kind of put these pegs in your chest and you pull back and break it. So I was really out of, depending on the Sundance, you have to do four Sundances, but I was the only one actually to make it without food and water. And, you know, uh, the fourth is what's called Eagle Dance, where you have the pegs in your chest for four days. Uh, what that means is that you have these pieces of wood that are about the size of your finger, but they're kind of sanded down on each side. They're there and the, in the, you're tied to the Sundance tree through these pegs in your chest. So, and then at the end you break it. Uh, you, you break it. Of course, it's a little bloody, so to speak, but it's not. Again, for me, it's not painful. It was like all part of the shamanic uh, experience. So I have all these different backgrounds, right, that begin to integrate. So how does that get us to six foundations of full peace? It's, it's like I saw that there are very different, many different ways to talk about it. So instead of being sectarian, I devised a, something that seemed in common with all the different systems I had directly an in-depth in experience. So that's actually how I developed it. So the six foundations, the first is a all plant-based, at least 80% uh, live food diet and fasting twice a year. We just took people on it. We did an internet fast just now. And I hope we don't have to keep doing it. It was really good experience, but I hope we're able to do it in person. But we'll see with the lockdown stuff. So that's one. Second, uh, expanding prana or nefesh, Hebrew word for prana. Okay. And what, what happens is pranayama, the yoga, the yoga asana, like I do yoga six days a week. 
You know, I sit in full lotus, I can sit for two hours, which is what's needed to master a pose. And, and so you're doing breathing exercises, expand your lungs, uh, and it takes you to more altered plane. And also I love to dance. So kind of dancing is, ecstatic dancing is another piece. So that's two. Three is service and charity. So in most traditions, service and charity is a very good way to burn karma. And it's also just a good thing to do for a heart connection. So that's the sixth one, uh, the third. The fourth is working with the spiritual teacher. Now, some people... They're not ready to because the ego isn't ready to handle it. But the advantage of spiritual teachers, they've fallen in all the holes before you have. <laughs> you can learn from their wisdom. And in this world, particularly at this sort of time, people need support. Yeah. It's really good to have a spiritual group, spiritual teacher, because there's a lot of uh, degenerate kind of energies. Uh, that are trying to pull people in. So that's part of why you want a spiritual teacher and a spiritual group. Fifth, as much meditation and prayer as possible, repeating the name of God as well. And sixth is the awakening of Kundalini, which is called the Ruach HaKadosh in the Torah tradition. It's in the different traditions. It's just that people don't, aren't really aware of it. Okay, so it says, Devarim 34.9, and Moses passed the energy into Yehoshua. Well, that's called Shaktipat in the Eastern tradition. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. So what I, I did is I, I took all these and, and took it into generic terms, the awakening of the spiritual energy, Ruach Kadesh in the Hebrew tradition, Kundalini in the, uh, in the yogic tradition. So that's the six foundations. And they're like basic and they're not sectarian. So everybody can relate to it because it doesn't belong to a religion, which is to me important because people need open doors not to get hung up in their feelings about religion. The sevenfold piece somewhat comes out of that. It's a little bit more a scene oriented peace with the body, which we talked about, peace with the mind with meditation. And peace with the family. And there's an area there that, as a, a psychiatrist, family therapist, sacred relations. And to me, sacred relationships, more emphasized in the West, and very much emphasized in the book, as you, as you probably noticed, is a uh, very powerful path of enlightenment. Now, we don't want to limit it by talking Tantra because most people think that's about sexuality, but sacred relationship is how two people interact to help each other evolve spiritually. And so, again, it's a path to liberation. So sacred relationship, peace with the family, peace with the community. Now, these days, peace with the community doesn't mean you make peace with everybody like you signed a peace treaty. Uh, which we were able to do in Central Harlem, but uh, it means you are at, you find a right way of relating to the community where you're at peace and you are not being agitated. I mean, look around. People are very agitated by, it doesn't matter about uh, what's going on in our society. Peace with the community is you're at peace with that. Now, okay, I see it's the fourth turning. I know there'll be a good outcome in the long run. Uh, 
but I'm at peace with it. Then there's peace with all cultures. For me, particularly with the Native American, we call Obatakiwasin. What does that mean? Peace with all my relations. So that's the living planet. That takes us into living ecology. Peace with the plant people. This is Native American term. Peace with the flying and swimming ones and peace with humanity. So it's peace on all those levels. And then after that, uh, the sixth foundation is uh, and peace with all cultures. So as I explained, I've spoken in 42 different nations all over the place, Middle East, Africa, obviously U.S., Canada, Mexico, all through Central America. So we that's peace with all the different cultures. And then what I call spiritual ecology, where we experience that uh, we're one with the living planet. So the living planet is actually part of us. So obviously you want to treat the living planet nice because you want to treat yourself nice. And then finally, peace with God. So that's the uh, six foundations, sevenfold peace. Now, symbolically, the number 13 uh, is actually quite good. In, in Hebrew, it's it's the three becomes one, also becomes love. Oh, I love that. It's about love and about oneness. So that's what the six foundations, sevenfold piece. So good question. Oh, I love that. Really beautiful. And you talk about also um, through the book, like returning, you know, you just brought up religion. This is what made me think about it, but um, returning to kind of your Jewish roots and like, and, and studying that you talk about Egypt, what was, um, because early in the book, you talk about not feeling very connected to, you know, all of the traditions around that. What was the, what was the experience for you to return to that? And what did you find new that maybe you weren't seeing early in your life? Very perceptive question. So uh, my main issue, because I had this whole mystical, spiritual energy kind of as part of who I was, right? Yep. Uh, it wasn't really uh, including that. And then after Muktananda, I also saw, wait, it's really not including liberation, even though it's talked about. So I wrote my book, uh, tour as a guide to enlightenment and so i reinterpreted all the symbols at this higher octave so after india i was finally able to understand the hidden uh and out front depth of the torah and of kabbalah okay yeah there are different levels when we talk about understanding there's just the, what I would call uh, spot, uh, which is just direct, literal interpretation, dresh, which is a deeper interpretation, uh, I mean, resh, which is deeper, and then dress, which is allegorical, metaphorical, and then sod. Sod is uh, metaphysical, and then I introduced the idea of upper sod, which is about liberation. Because metaphysical is still in your mind. And so I saw that there was clear teachings, although people weren't aware of it. I mean, I'm talking about the basic people who are the rabbis. There's just a few aware of it. Over time, I've discovered them. So 
When I uh, returned from India and I had, after a 40 day fast, they said, go to your roots. It's like, oh, okay, I'll see what that's about. And so the going to the roots meant really getting to the essence of what's going on and not the current cultural traditions. Does that make sense? Yeah. So that's really what that has meant to me. Uh, and I'll be honest, I, it's not exactly what a lot of people get. Uh, but more and more people are, are actually getting that. Uh, and particularly in uh, Israel, there's a, a lot of people broken away from the more orthodox ways and so forth. But they still have a hunger for God. So how do you express it? So what I'm sharing with people is a way to express it. Torah is a guide to enlightenment because, oh, there's a higher vision. Well, there always was a higher vision. But now we can see that there's a higher vision. So that's how I've kind of worked with it is that I've taken my other background and looked with new eyes at the basic uh, Torah, Talmud, uh, uh, prophetic teachings. I love that. And before we came on, which I thought was amazing, and I wanted to ask you about this, you were talking about being a wild liberated mystic. Like I identify more with being a wild liberated mystic versus, you know, a well educated in your doctor, right? And and all these things that you have titles, right? You have worn in your life. When you look back on your life journey, what is it about wild liberated mystic that feels so resonant at this point? Gosh, you've really great question again. What it is, is in the process of self-realization, you have to be free, in Hebrew it's called hippastut, you have to be free to move in any direction. So if you are looking at a very narrow uh, vision of what spirituality is, uh, you create a kind of a limitation or you get, you know, or religion is. So the wild part is free to move in any direction. The mystic part of it is, from a very early age, connecting to the divine through literally, since four years old, mystical experiences, almost at every level of uh, time in my life, which then take me to other levels. So... That's and then from that, I, I was fortunate to be acknowledged by my, my two uh, Swami Prakashana and Swami Muktana as, as being self realized. Okay, that's that's fine, but that's also just another step along the way, so we don't have any limitations. The process continues, it's endless, and so that is part of being that wild, abraded mystic. It's like, fine, you're. You, there's only God. We're put on the planet only to know God. We're not supposed to be robots. Uh, and the purpose of all humanity is to evolve towards God. So it's like all that process are pulsating through me. In the book, there's a lot of poetry. Yes. Uh, which, which is, in a certain way, a way of really capturing this uh, very, I'm going to say romantic, because for me it's romantic, this very romantic, passionate and eros means to see god and everything it doesn't mean erotic as you see in you know movies or things it's this passionate connection with the divine and that's the the wild debrated stuff where you're experiencing the eros of all 
of creation. Mm, so beautifully said. The book is Into the Nothing, Dr. Gabriel Cousins. This has been a real treat for me. And I just want to personally thank you for the work that you are doing and have done in the world. You've had an extraordinary life and do live an extraordinary life. And I just, you know, I, I feel that vibration and it's really beautiful. So thank you. Well, thank you very much, Shoda. It's, it's really good to talk to you and may you be blessed and all the listeners be blessed that we open up to the deeper truth of who we are and join the dance of the divine at ever deeper levels. Amen. Aho. I'm Shauna Lee, and you've been listening to the Soul Frequency Show podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and Facebook at The Soul Frequency. If you haven't yet, go to Apple Podcasts and subscribe, rate, and review this show. Join me next week for more powerful awakenings and positive vibes.